as you are still standing, if you'll find in your Bibles, Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9 this morning. If you're using the, the ESV Black Pew Bibles, it's page 879, toward the end of your Bible there, Luke 20, starting in verse 9. We were in Luke 19 last week, and over the last few years, we've covered the triumphal entry and, and some of these other passages leading right up to verse 9. So that's why we're jumping from one to the other, but I'll say a word about that in a moment. So Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Would you hear then uh, God's word as it's read to you? And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Uh, But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. God, would you bless and add your understanding to the reading and now preaching of your holy word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Barbara Krensavage insisted that clams are not a regular part of her diet. Yet one snowy evening in December, she found herself craving an old recipe and so brought home four dozen uh, cohogs, a clam particularly abundant along the eastern shores of the U.S. between Cape Cod and New Jersey. Mr. Krensavage was in the midst of shucking the shellfish for dinner when he discovered one that looked like it was dead. It had a different color to it, and he thought that it was diseased. As he was about to discard it, uh, Mrs. Krensavage took a closer look. Uh, It wasn't dead. In fact, inside the live clam was a rare, possibly priceless purple pearl. Experts estimate that roughly one in two million quahog clams contains a gem-quality pearl like the one found by the Kren savages. Uh, due to the great rarity of the find, it has been difficult to even place the value on it, though some have estimated the pearl to be worth uh, hundreds of thousands of, do- of dollars. This pearl was so easily 
looked at, despised, and about to be discarded. And yet it was of great value, and certainly to the joy of those that found it. What we see in our passage is that Jesus is described as a cornerstone, uh, which can mean different things in the ancient context. It could be, you know, we think of an arch and the stone in the center. It it could be uh, two perpendicular, uh, the wall and the ceiling coming and the stone holding it together. It could even be the foundation stone upon which everything is built. It can have all of these meanings. Either way, it's the key stone. If you take it away, the whole thing crumbles. And yet the metaphor we see in, in, in the passage is that the leaders of the time, those who despised Jesus, they, it's like they tossed him aside. It's like they were builders building and said, who wants this stone? And they tossed it aside as Jesus was cast out of Jerusalem on the cross. But what we see also in the passage Uh, For those who discard him and who hate him, it's a dreadful thing. Uh, But for those who come to know Christ and love him, uh, they realize that this is the pearl of great price. Uh, This is the cornerstone upon which their entire life should be built. And I pray that that's where you find this morning, or that you're reminded of this morning, uh, that Christ is the cornerstone. We're going to look at three aspects of this from our text. Uh, Number one, Christ is the rejected cornerstone. The rejected cornerstone. Uh, as we come into our passage, verse 9, as I said, we've, we've jumped ahead a little bit uh, as we've covered some of these passages. You remember last week, if you were here, we were looking earlier in Luke chapter 19 uh, as he gave a parable of the ten minus. You might notice some striking similarities between these two parables that we've now sort of put right next to each other. Uh, There's someone that goes away uh, who expects something of those that are left behind. Uh, But we'll talk about some of the differences between those two in just a moment. Uh, But Jesus gives that parable last week for us to to say, hey, I'm going away. I'm not going to come back tomorrow, and so get to work. There's kingdom work to be done. Uh, Get busy. Do business. Increase. Get creative. That was the message then. Jesus gives this message right before verse 28. He goes into Jerusalem. And as we've seen, and as if you've ever been at a Palm Sunday service, uh, you know, palm branches are raised high, hosannas are raised high, and it seems like the moment that Jesus is going to come in and take names, but it ends in verse 41 with him weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, because even though they saw aspects of his, of his kingly uh, nature, his character, they, they didn't quite get it. They didn't know that this king was coming to die for the sins of his people, and so he weeps over Jerusalem that by 70 AD would be surrounded by the Romans uh, and nearly uh, wiped off the map, as it were, the temple, surely. So Jesus weeps. Jesus goes into the temple, verse 45, and clears it. Uh, In chapter 20, the rulers are questioning his authority, and and he's thwarting that at every move and showing that he's the one. He's the king, prophet, priest who's in charge. And now he begins this parable. Again, a parable that starts very similar to the parable last time, and yet uh, there's a different focus. In the parable last week, uh, Jesus was preparing his disciples uh, for what came next, right? He was reminding them he's going to die. There will be this long period, indefinite period, where we're waiting for him to come back, his his return. He died, he rose again, he's at the right hand of the Father. We're longing for the day when King Jesus shows up in a visible way, but in the in-between, we have work to do. And so get to work. Uh, That's why Jesus wrote the first, to prepare his disciples uh, for what came next. Here, 
Jesus is doing something a little bit different. He is warning his opponents about what is about to happen. And so the timeline is zoomed in on this one. It looks back to Old Testament history, brings us right up to the moment when Jesus is about to die for his people. And he looks, as it says, directly at the rulers in their eyes and warns them, this is about to happen. And this is your last chance to repent and believe in me. So that's where we have this parable. Look at, look at the different elements of this parable. A, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. And when the time came, he sent servants to the tenants, but they mistreat the servants. That's the, uh, we have a man planting a vineyard. We know pretty obviously this represents God. Uh, the vineyard then is God's people, especially Old Testament Israel. Uh, This is a a metaphor that we see often in the Old Testament, but Isaiah chapter 5 puts it this way. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Uh, He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he came and looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge between me and the vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done when I looked for it to yield grapes and did it not yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break it down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness but behold, an outcry. This vineyard metaphor very aptly summarizes Old Testament history. God uh, is, is the vine dresser who, who plucked his people out of Egypt, uh, like a plant. If you've ever had to transplant a plant from one place to another, it's a very delicate process. Uh, there's, there's roots and vines and, and, and things connected to the soil. Uh, in other words, God's people didn't leave Egypt easily in every way. They still had their idols and things, and we want to go back and eat the food we ate in Egypt. But he, he graciously transplanted them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He went to plant them into the promised land. Uh, after 40 years of their rebellion led to a delay in this, but he eventually planted them, drove out their enemies, got rid of the rocks and the thorns and the thistles, and, and planted his people and said, you are my people, I am your God, follow me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he appointed leaders over them, that's the tenants, those who would call people to repentance, who would always draw people back to God's word. I say, no, 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 look at his word. He is good. Remember, get rid of your idols. Don't do this. But what do we also see in Old Testament history is that it's often the leaders that were corrupt, the leaders who had forgotten God's word. So the very leaders who should have been shepherding God's people were filling their own pockets and, 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 and building their own idols in high places. And so God, throughout Old Testament history, sent his servants, the prophets, who would come and say, thus saith the Lord, who would come and remind them of the law of God, remind them of their calling to love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, warning them that the time is now to repent. And yet time and again, the prophets were mistreated. At best, not listened to. At worst, killed. And God's people were brought into exile, but God kept sending prophets 
uh, God's people were brought back from Israel, from, from exile, uh, and yet prophets were still speaking. People were still resisting. The leaders were still corrupt. And this, led us, this leads to the moment of Jesus' day when he's been confronting the corruption of the leaders this whole time. They are the people who should have been saying, this is the Messiah. Bow down to him. We have been waiting for this Jesus. And yet they're the very people who are resisting him, rejecting him. And what they don't realize is that they're in a long line of wicked tenants. Uh, They think they're being so clever, but they don't realize they're in a long line. These tenants who, when a servant is sent to them, they mistreat them and beat them and send them out. Uh, In our parable, the, uh, the, uh, the man sends three servants. Each of them are treated shamefully, sent away. Until we get then to verse 13. What then shall I do, he says to himself? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And you might be thinking, well, if the other servants were mistreated, why would he think that something different is going to happen? Uh, you know, is, is, in the parable, is this a foolish move? Uh, but if you, if, I think the emphasis is a little bit different. If, if, if you're trying to point out the wickedness of these tenants... If they haven't gotten the message that they shouldn't be doing this to the servants, if the son comes, they should finally wake up and say, what have we been doing? This is the son of the owner. But instead, their wickedness grows all the more, and they say, let's kill him. Uh, Let's take the inheritance for ourselves. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then we have that ominous note, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So we have in this parable, again, last week was very different. It was Christ looking at his people and saying, I'm about to die, I'll be gone for a while, you know, get to work. There's kingdom work to be done. Now he's looking at his opponents and saying, this is about to happen. You've been rejecting me all along. Repent and believe in me, the the beloved son that was sent. And if not, the rejected cornerstone will become the dreaded cornerstone. And that's the second point. Christ is the cornerstone, the rejected cornerstone, rejected by the leaders, rejected by those who, who hate him. Uh, but for those that reject him, he becomes the dreaded cornerstone. Uh, again, that Alma doesn't know, what, what, will, what shall I do? Uh, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Remember, Jesus is telling him, This is what is about to happen. I've just summarized for you Old Testament history leading right up to now. You're in a long line of those who have rejected the prophets, and now the prophet. I'm going to Jerusalem as the beloved son. I will die for the sins of my people. I will be cast out of Jerusalem, as it were, just like out of the vineyard. I will be killed by those who think they are gaining something. And so he looks directly at them and tells them the reality. I am the stone that the builders rejected. I'm becoming the cornerstone. The cornerstone. What God's people, the church, will be built upon. What the gates of hell will not prevail against this people, and this church. I'm going to purchase that. I'm going to die as the rejected cornerstone 
And there's two options. You can come to believe in me and see me as a choice and precious living stone, or you can reject me, continue to reject me, and you will be crushed. You will be crushed. This, as we said, would happen to Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, That's even beyond the readers of Luke. They hadn't experienced that yet. It was was just on the cusp of happening. Uh, But even before that, they, they started to see these things happening as tensions with Rome rose and rose. But this speaks to a greater reality than just 70 AD. It's all those who would reject Christ will one day be crushed by him and his authority. In an, an early Jewish proverb from just after this time says this, If a stone falls on the pot, alas for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, alas for the pot. <laughs> right? Christ is the cornerstone, strong, mighty, the king of kings. Those who think that they in power are rejecting him will only find uh, that they're running up against a wall, as it were. I came across a story of a, of a young man who grew up on the Atlantic coast, and, and, and he was building sandcastles, and he had a problem of bullies who would come and, and trample his sandcastle. And so he decided to put cinder blocks in the middle of the sandcastle, then build the sandcastle, then run away and hide. Um, and uh, the bullies, you know, only tried to destroy one more sandcastle uh, as they stomped down on, uh, on this hard stone. Jesus is giving a visceral image and looking the leaders in the eye to say, don't continue on this path because I am the cornerstone who either will crush you or will give you life, will be the foundation of your your whole life. And so, friend, I want to look you in the eye and ask you, have you put faith in Jesus Christ? When you read this passage, do you say, he's my cornerstone. I build my life on him. He died for me. He rose for me. He's the king of kings, and I want to do whatever he says to do. If you haven't, I would ask you to put your faith in him even now, right now, because he's here among his people. His spirit is here. He calls his own by name, and perhaps he's doing that right now. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ? And if you do, you will join all of us who see him, number three, as the beloved cornerstone. The beloved cornerstone. He's rejected. He's dreaded by some. But for those who come to know Jesus Christ, he's the beloved cornerstone, the pearl of great price, the foundation stone. And this is where we really get at the meaning, and and this is helpful for any text of Scripture. You You have to say, okay, what was the meaning when Jesus was speaking these words to those who were hearing the words? And and here Jesus is mainly speaking, not only, but mainly to his opponents. He's looking them in the eye, giving them a final warning. This is going to happen. Believe in me. But then you think, okay, well, Jesus spoke these words, and now Luke records these words by the power of the Spirit. Uh, God's plan was that you would hear this passage today. And so we have to say, what... What does this passage then have to say? Certainly, we've already seen it warns us if we find ourselves rejecting him. Reminds us that we're not special. We're in a long line of those that reject him. But what about for God's people? Because all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for our teaching, reproof, correction. All scripture builds us up, builds up his church. And a passage like this, you might say, you can kind of read this and say, oh, that's just for people who reject Jesus. And so I'll go to the next one. Uh, oh, paying taxes to Caesar? I'll go to the next one. Come back next week. Um, so you have to keep skipping ahead a lot uh, if that's your approach. No, instead we say, 
Um, think of the early church hearing this. Uh, persecution is starting to grow. Uh, Gentiles have been coming into the church, and much of Luke's audience would have been Gentile, non-Jews. Uh, things are getting harder. It's not quite what it would become, but uh, things are feeling a little unsteady. There's churches being planted. Uh, people are wondering as they move from Judaism into Christianity or from paganism into Christianity, sort of, where, where do we go from here? <laughs> Is this going to last? The... And what are they reminded of? And therefore, what are we reminded of? Christ is the cornerstone. He's the stone that the builders rejected. And even his predicting that shows that uh, this was his plan. Everything that he said was going to happen, happened. He laid down his own life. And he raised it up again. And he became the cornerstone. This is meant uh, for your comfort. This is meant uh, for your establishment in the, in the faith uh, this same, uh, that same passage from Psalm 118 gets repeated again and again in the rest of the New Testament. You know, in Ephesians, we, uh, we have the image of being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And then 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4, speaks of both the rejection, but then uh, the, the wonderful nature of those who love him. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe." But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But not you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light." For the early church, and therefore for us, that's what we take away from this passage. We see that he was rejected, he was despised, dreaded by some, but to us, chosen, precious, a living stone, a rock of ages, a rock of refuge that we can run to and be safe. And so would you do that this morning? Would you be reminded that Christ is the cornerstone? He's not going anywhere. He's building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Your current suffering will not prevail against it. Your battle against that sin in your life will not prevail against it. He will work in you by his spirit. He will build his church for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, that your word is truth in a way that is like a double-edged sword, that it cuts us right to the heart. It warns us. And that speaks of your grace, Lord, that you would look us in the eye and warn us of what happens when we reject Christ. But we thank you that it's a double-edged sword, that it cuts to the heart and your spirit awakens us to see Christ for who he is. And I pray that you would do that this morning, that we would walk away emboldened in our faith, connected to Christ, our cornerstone. May we see the fruit of, of the Spirit's work as, as you build your church, even here at Trinity, even this week, even this year. And so I pray that we would uh, walk away emboldened, ready to serve and share the gospel wherever we go. I pray this 
In Jesus' name, amen.